Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 23. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 23. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. We're here to discuss another chapter of Not a Fan by Kyle Edelman and whatever else comes to mind. We're on chapter 10. The title is Deny a Total Surrender. And if I were to summarize this chapter in a couple sentences, I would say Kyle's kind of... uh, He's really honed in on Luke 9.23, where Jesus basically says to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily, and Kyle is pretty much trying to hammer this point home, kind of, I think, in the chapter before, and in this chapter, and in subsequent chapters, it feels to me more, it's just, it's just kind of over and over, he just kind of keeps taking it one level deeper and trying to lay it on heavier and heavier kind of culminating in this chapter with the notion of denying yourself equaling slavery and that that's what the Bible calls us to and that that's a really good thing. So, how am I doing so far? Sound pretty good. You know, this is, uh, I'll be be honest, this is our second take on this chapter and uh, I'm kind of glad we're doing it this way because uh, I certainly found it, uh, seemed like he was everywhere. You know, he just didn't seem very uh, cohesive at all. But no, I would going, agree. With, I would totally agree that the chapter's not. Well, I'm kind of finding this throughout the book. I don't feel like this is a real coherent, very well laid out like where each chapter kind of builds on the next to the kind of this resounding conclusion. It mm-hmm. just feels like he has kind of these five or six pet topics, and he's just like hitting them with any tool that he can find. And they yeah. don't all go together to me very like well on a point to where I get to the end and I have like an epiphany or I'm like, whoa, okay, I see the gravity of what he's trying to say or, wow, that really changes my mind. Instead, I'm usually kind of revolted. But <laughs> I, I like that description. Um, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but anyway, continue uh, with I, where I, you were going. Stick with revolted, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think... Um, I mean, I wonder too if, if this is a question. If what you're perceiving as disjointed, a disjointed presentation, is due to a writing style or maybe a lack of uh, writing skill, or if it's due to the fact that he's he's trying to work something out, but 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 his view of it is so contorted that it's it's not it's it's taking him in a direction against which he wants to go. I wonder about that. I mean, I I can't prove that at all. But in other words, you're saying that that he doesn't have a really rock-solid, well-constructed viewpoint, and so he has a lot of things that he believes really strongly, and he's just... But he's... And so that's why he's not able to really get them across clearly so that we can understand them? That plus, I think there are things that are part of his belief system that are not prominent in this book that contradict some of the stuff that he's got in this book. In other words, I think he's he's holding a contradictory position. And I think that that's undercutting his ability to be organized. Interesting. Yep. That's that. I, I would hold to that 100%. Okay. This whole idea about love, we'll get to that. But 
Okay, so, so why well, I, I yeah, so I think there's one part here at the beginning that doesn't really well, he says it ties in with the rest of the chapter. I don't. I wanted to hit it real quick and then move mm. on to the whole denying of yourself. So it's the first part of the chapter, uh, page 143, if you're following along at home. he To me, this epitomizes the some of the assumptions behind this book and also, I think, a real weakness in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that is um, the assumption that we are able to divine other people's motivations and reasons for what they do. Mm-hmm. And I think where that leads us is, is, is into a lot of judgmentalism, like totally unnecessary judgmentalism. So he, he paints a picture to make an example and a point for this chapter. I really don't, I sort of see his point, but I really feel like it's based on way too many assumptions. And mm-hmm. I also think it's, it's really just judgmental. So he paints a picture of this or this portrait of, He's working out at the gym. He looks out the window. He sees this rather large guy getting out of his car. He's grabbing for his gym bag. And, whoa, no, he he arises from the car, and he's got a blizzard from Dairy Queen in his hand. And, you know, he, quote, he stands right outside the window in front of me and takes his final bites. I'm pretty sure it was cookie dough. He throws the empty cup in the trash can and walks in for his workout. He wanted to get in shape, but he didn't want to make any personal sacrifices. Any personal sacrifices. Really? Like, how do we know? Like, to me, that's so exactly. presumptuous. Maybe yeah. he was, maybe he today weighs uh, 200 pounds and a year ago he weighed 500. And so this is the first time he's had a Dairy Queen blizzard in three years. Like, we don't know any, I don't know. To me, it, yeah, it, it, it makes a nice way to set up the chapter about denying yourself and not making sacrifices. But to mm-hmm. me, it's a horrible example, and it's totally judgmental because he doesn't know the first thing about this guy, at least based on what he's put in this book. And I think this happens a lot, where we look at other yeah. people's lives and we say, oh, wow, they're they're totally blowing it. I mean, they're they're eating this or drinking that or or thinking that this, whatever, and and they're wrong, and it's completely messing up their lives and maybe it is but they're the only ones that can really decide that for themselves and change if they want to as a result not just because someone looks into their life and says oh yeah you're blowing it yeah yeah and it's a bit unsettling when he begins his argument about how we all don't want to commit by (laughs) this enormous presumption or assumption about somebody who's not committing that he has no clue about it sets us up for, yeah, it's like his, his use of uh, certain Bible verses in a fairly uh, loose yeah, loose way, yeah. Which yeah. which to me we come, so this probably rolls into some of the meteor stuff that I think you want to talk about. So at the bottom of that page, he, quote, in Luke 9.23, Jesus makes it clear that if we are going to follow him, a casual, no-strings-attached arrangement isn't a possibility. Quote, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And then he says, this is Kyle says, you can't come after Jesus without denying yourself. The phrase deny himself isn't just the idea of saying no to yourself or even resisting yourself. The idea here is that you do not even acknowledge or recognize your own existence. To which I wrote, gong. Yeah. Game over. Could Could not disagree more. And really, that just makes no sense at all. I mean, I know we hear it in Christianity, but like, 
How do no. you live if you don't acknowledge your own existence? Like, I mean, really, how does that work out? No, and, and it can't, you know, and that was my number one point. I, I've broken this chapter down into basically three points, and that's his first one. That, that last sentence on 143, the idea here is you do not even acknowledge or recognize your own existence. And he kind of expands on that on the, the bottom of the next two pages further at 145. He says, we, when we sacrificially deny ourselves for Christ's sake, it is the clearest evidence of our committed love. So again, we are sacrificially denying ourselves as we express our love through our self-sacrifice. Not just self-sacrifice, but denying ourselves, effacing ourselves, not even being, as he says earlier, not even recognizing our own existence. Um, and maybe I'll just put these, I'll put these three points out there. And then he, he moves on from that uh, two pages later, uh, four pages later on 149. And the result of self-denial is essentially slavery. Slaves have no rights, no possessions and no personal identity. So what we're supposed to be as those who are loving to, to love correctly is to become a slave. And then interestingly, this is, this is the kicker for me. Um, you go another four pages to 153 and uh, he's uh, near the bottom. Uh, and he says at the, I guess the third graph up from the bottom, Jesus invites you to deny yourself. He invites you to be a slave. And then this is where we, this is the, the kind of the culminating point for me. When we sacrifice everything, God loves us. The last full paragraph on 153 reads, one more thing. When you become a slave to my master, he makes you his son. He makes you his daughter. He calls you a friend. When you do this, this happens. One thing happens. One thing is the cause of the next thing, or the second thing results from the first thing. You say it either way. Well, that's yeah, and that's to me that's like this whole notion you you see in church worship services of you know the the music to get you all ramped up to kind of like bring God into our presence. It's like, well, God was already there, wasn't he? Like he's there all the time. The same notion here. I mean, like. Yeah, but I think even even more so, this is a as a theological point, or maybe considered theologically, this is, I mean, this is just, it's flat out wrong, and it's flat out destructive, and it's distorting, because he's basically saying that God's orientation towards us depends on our orientation towards God, and that's, it's the exact opposite. Say more our, about that, because... On the surface, I would say, well, I would have, I would have agreed with that statement. Uh, and then maybe that's just too many years of being immersed in this culture and way of thinking. It might be. <laughs> Help me out then. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, you see, this is this is where I think his disorganization is a product of a conflict of some things that he knows to be true but can't reconcile in the way he has set up his own beliefs. And this, I think, is indicative of, of evangelical Christianity as one of the biggest problems, uh, which I express as the inability to properly integrate love and truth. Love and truth are co-central. They exist in a, in a mutually informing, productive, and flexible tension. Truth informs love. Love informs truth. Sometimes it appears that love takes the upper hand over truth, sometimes the opposite. 
And what I see here is very clearly the result of somebody putting way, way, way too much emphasis on truth as though, and it distorts what the ultimate result is, is that it distorts the notion of love in the Bible, in Christianity, in the Gospels. So my point earlier was God does not respond to us on the basis of how we respond to God. God responds to us full stop. God is oriented towards us already. You know, this whole idea of, you know, I, I, I knew you before, you before you were born. I knit you together in your mother's womb. Um, this is uh, God's orientation towards us. God knows us and loves us and seeks for us. God calls us and longs to hear our voices. God is the father on the road that sees the prodigal son a ways off and runs to him. God is already there. God is already there. God is already seeking us, already desirous of us, already in love with us. We are already God's daughters, sons. As Jesus says, you know, you, you may call me friend. And uh, that is already the case. That is already the orientation that God desires. God simply desires that we should, we should accept this. God, is, God bases this on nothing that we do. Nothing yeah. that... Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think what just popped in my head, I think my, but my background would say there is that sin is what gets, gets in the way. And that's why we need Jesus, because Jesus comes and dies for our sins. And, you know, then but, God can stand to look at us and be in our presence because of what Jesus did. Yeah, but we're, 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 we're screwing up the first step. We're, we're, we're massively screwing up the first step. The first step is to be at a certain point utterly amazed that God doesn't give a rip about anything I have done or ever will do or ever could do. I mean, God loves Hitler. God loves Stalin. God loves Mao as much as God loves me. You know, at certain points, clearly, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. God doesn't really care that I don't agree. God's <laughs> not going to change God's orientation based on my agreement or disagreement. That is just the way it is. And that is worthy of an enormous pause of amazement and wonder. And we never give that its due. And the problem here is that we rush over into that. We rush over into this whole idea of, of uh, the problem of sin. And the problem, as I've said before, is not sin. Sin is a symptom. The problem is lack of proper relationship. God is always trying to solve the problem, which is problem, a lack of proper relationship. And dealing with that means dealing with sin, dealing with death. But those aren't the issues. The issue is that God loves us and we're not with God. God longs for us to be with God and we are not. How to fix that? What to do with that? You know, and what, what he's doing, what Kyle is setting up, is this weird contorted cart before the horse situation where we're denying ourselves. I mean, God loves us and desires us like crazy and we're supposed to, you know, don't even recognize your existence. So, so hold on. God thinks I'm incredible, but I need to think I'm basically worthless. Is that how it works? I mean, that's oh. essentially how it's working for Kyle. You're totally off base. Where is your identity coming from? If your identity is coming from God, you are wonderful. You are fantastic. You are beloved. And that works out in every moment of your relationship as a Christian with God, with yourself, with others, with the earth. 
your deep, deep value is an intrinsic reality to how you carry yourself and behave yourself and view yourself and how others are called to as well. The whole idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is that you love yourself aright. Because if you love yourself wrongly, you're going to treat others like crap. Hmm. And he's, he's got the cart. Everything's wrong here. It's all the wrong way around. I am, I am called and named as I, uh, as a male, I'm called and named as son, just as those who are female are called and named as daughters. And we are called to be servants as well but the, he he you know and again in this 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 portion uh when he's talking about being a slave um he 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 really goes overboard you see this is the problem he he, he <laughs> so he has to so i think what you were saying earlier he has to go overboard yes. to make his point yes he's got to compensate radically he can't have this you see the word that we're talking about in greek is doulos Doulos is translated at many points uh, as slave, agreed, but it's translated at many other points as servant. So there are portions where Kyle talks about, you know, on page 149. Well, yeah, the actual discussion of the Greek is on 151. And yeah. a little bit before that, at the bottom of 150, the quote, the Bible would teach the highest calling for you is to be a slave who denies himself and follows Jesus. And I would say, no, that's Kyle's assertion that that's what the Bible <laughs> says. But I and, and I'll be totally honest. I'm totally wrestling with a lot of this stuff because I would say for my entire life that the whole notion of being a Christian was all about denial and was all about, you know, when I'm weak, he is strong. And the, this this whole irony and, and juxtaposition of of what would appear to be the most unattractive thing being the most attractive. And, and so I, uh, yeah, I, I look at this and say, well, the Bible would teach this is the highest calling. I would say, no, Kyle would say this is the highest calling based on one verse in the Bible that he's like kidding with anything he can find. Um, but, but, but I guess I also want to be totally honest and say, I'm, I'm having a hard time letting go of this notion that, that I have to do a bunch of stuff so that I can find God. I mean, and that's, I think, one of the criticisms that's been given to me by others is that the reason that I can't truly find God is that, you know, maybe I haven't, like, 100% surrendered, which I think is also the message in here. In fact, he kind of, I want to talk about that at some point, the last mm-hmm. part of this chapter uh, talks about the notion of of giving up, completely giving up. To which yeah, I would, to which I would, <laughs> say, to which I dawned on me as I reread that, I thought giving up to me that's surrender, that's not sacrifice, and those are two totally different things. Great so, point. so anyway, I, yeah, this whole notion though of, of, I don't know. So I guess I'd like to explore that more. Like, and I keep coming back to, okay, so what is, and it's not because I'm trying to get out of it, of doing what I need to do, but what exactly, because, because I think. Books like this are so representative of my past. I think I just, mm-hmm. I think I get triggered without even realizing it. And I think I also just kind of end up crossing my arms saying, no, I've heard all that stuff before. I've heard people yell and scream at me about what I need to do and why, how I'm not doing enough. And if I did, then, you know, God would show up. And so mm-hmm. part of me is like, oh, yeah, that really is the true message. And the other part of me is like, well, it hasn't worked. 
So, well, that's a really good point. I mean, it hasn't worked, and it, and it should work. Um, yeah, your point about giving up is a great one, and I just wrote that down at the end of the book there to make sure we come back to that. Um, that I come back to that. So I took us uh-huh. in a, a kind of a detour around where you were going with slavery, the high, that yeah. being the highest calling. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I guess what I would say is uh, it's about denial. No, it's not about denial. It's about accepting embrace and embracing. God is reaching out to us. God is seeking relationship with us. God loves us. God values us above all things. And the, 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 the number, like the first point. Is, well, that message isn't anywhere in this book. You see, and, the, and that's, it, that's an absolute tragedy. And I think it's a travesty as well. I think this is, this is as misleading as, as some of the pharisaical stuff that Jesus completely cuts down and tries to destroy in the New Testament. I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is dangerous perversion. And and I think the reason it doesn't make sense to you is because it doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't work in your experience is because unless you completely get into this mindset, this dualistic mindset, that on the one hand, oh, yeah, God loves me and God thinks I'm terrific. But my job is to think that I'm relatively worthless. And that anything Because good God I totally do, loves me. Exactly. Well, and that in feeling worthless and in feeling worthless and completely empty, then I'll find God. Well, and but, then how to, to, but then you can't find God because you don't exist. And <laughs> well, and he's trying to put so together circular. these verses. Yeah, he, he's got things in the wrong priority. He's got these notions, these verses that he's trying to put together that he's exegeted poorly and that the, the evangelical church, you know, granted, it's not just Kyle Eidelman who's doing this and who's breaking out on his own against some really strong and, and valuable kind of notion of God's love that's existing in evangelical churches today. No, I mean, it's not there. I think Kyle Eidelman is simply representative of a large swath of evangelicalism that cannot manage and has not managed to put together these things in a way that is accurate and works. And, you know, the priority is dead clear. It is dead clear. There is, I, I just can't understand how anybody can argue with this. If somebody, you know, in each of the gospel, each of the synoptic gospels, Jesus is saying, you know, the greatest priority, the, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And third, to be a slave. Oh, it's not <laughs> well, there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Kyle would have us say that the first thing is to be a slave. You see, I'm not I'm not against the slave thing per se, although I think. I think honestly he's got it he's got it wrong. I th- I think that that servant is is far more in keeping. Um particularly because we're we have to take this in context. Context means we're coming out of the Old Testament. How did the Old Testament how did the Jews see themselves? Did they see themselves as slaves to God? Did they see themselves as as servants as those who were called people, elected people, a chosen people? Well, I think they saw themselves as as more as the servants, and and certainly there was slavery going on in the Old Testament, and and the Jews had slaves, and you could give yourself up in slavery actually, but the slavery idea is far more nuanced and it's far less radical. He's got this kind of slavery, like I don't know uh, how how uh, black slaves in the U.S. in the 19th century. I mean that that is not exactly what it looks lo- what it looked like in Israel. That is that is not the conception of a slave. Uh, some slaves had it very. They were, had a, you know, it was it was it was a very good situation to be in, and 
much better than being free, honestly. When you, when you look at slavery, either in antiquity or in the ancient Near East, um, so in the time of antiquity being New Testamental, ancient Near East being Old Testamental. Um, anyways, but the point that I'm trying to get across there is that his he, he's, he's coming about it the, from, from completely the wrong direction. And he is, he, I think, because he just does not have a good handle on, and I don't mean this just intellectually, I mean, I mean, ultimately, this, this may appear like a bit of a personal shot, but I, I'm not sure how, when you're talking about love, it cannot be personal. But if you don't have a good sense of being loved by God, how on earth can you explain it? How on earth can you put that out there? If this is not, there are intellectual components agreed, but this is not an intellectual reality. This is a personal, emotional um, reality. So are you, you, you're questioning whether he feels loved by God? I'm questioning whether he understands it. And if he's going to understand it, the only way he's going to understand it is by experiencing it. You know, as Augustine writes in his Confessions, the person will understand me who is in love, who has been in love. You're not going to get it. I'm describing a situation of love. You're not going to get it if you can't relate. You 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 gotta have an experiential attachment to this notion if this is going to make sense to you. Same thing here. And if he's got it, why don't you put it out there? Because man, let me tell you, from my perspective, having that, that's all I want to talk about. It is a, it is difficult for me to take myself away from that, and I know I have to. I have to talk about other things. I have to bring in other perspectives. But that love piece, key, it's it's orienting. That's the that's why it's at the top. It's this. It's got this gravity. Like, but you said they were side by side. Well, they are side by side. But as it's expressed in the New Testament, the number one commandment is to love God with all that you've got. That love relationship is the key. And it, it, the, how that works out in terms of truth and love. I mean, God is truly the one to be loved. God is truly that 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 that. Are you guilty of what you're busting Kyle for? Then it sounds like you're putting love above truth. Sometimes and you've I said do. that, and you've said that he's putting truth above love. Yeah, sometimes I do. Well, yeah, but I mean, truth will come back, and 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 you know, truth. I think in terms of this love piece, what I would say is very clearly the number one orientation for the Christian is to be in love with God, and that is true. And the greatest truth for me is to be deeply loved by one whom I love deeply. Truth is not going to, you're not going to be able to, to tear them apart, right? You're not going to be able, if, if you've got them related in the right way, you're not going to be able to kind of, it's like a tumor. You're not going to be able to just kind of extract it and put it all out here. You can't do that. You're going to leave parts of it behind. It's really kind of intermeshed. Um, but if you, I mean, if you wanted a good example, I mean, um, there are perspectives in the text that when I look with them, they uh, cut back against some of the things that I believe and feel. I don't see the Bible coming down with this notion of um, the greatest responsibility of a Christian is to to know the truth and, and tell people the truth and live by the truth. But but uh, of course, the idea that the greatest commandment is to love God is not in any way in contradiction to the truth. It is the embodiment of of the greatest truth. And that's why this whole notion of truth as something that's divorced from action and divorced from orientation is completely false.
Now, Kyle would have us enslave ourselves. That's the action he would have us take. Well, no, and what just popped out of me is, yeah, so on 150, on page 150, when he says, the Bible would teach us that the highest calling for you is to be a slave who denies himself and follows Jesus, that would appear to contradict to love God with all your heart, right? Seems like that to me. I, I don't see how those two things are the same. Like, why, why don't you say if the highest calling is to love God, why don't you write, the Bible would teach the highest calling for you is to love God with all yourself. If he, he swings it around, finally on the back end, at the bottom of page 153, one more thing, when you become a slave to my master, he makes you a son. When you sacrifice all, in other words, God loves you. No, God loved me already. God already told, I was already a child of God. Right? God already has been calling for me. God has been seeking me out long before I made any moves, I heard anything, I understood, or understanding, I, I gave a rip. So this comes back to that whole notion of there's nothing that, that we need to do. Well, I think we need to do things, but I think what he's got us, he's got us doing things before we have any understanding. He's got us doing things before we experience anything. He's got us counting on God's love before we feel in God's love. He's got us believing that God cares for us before we see and taste and smell God's goodness for us. You can't do that. That's ridiculous. No, I would totally agree, because I think that's where I'm stuck, personally. Well, who wouldn't be stuck? Then this is my question. What type of orientation to the world, to yourself, and to God do people have to have in order to just sort of go forward with this? I mean, I could see this as a child, right? Because children trust. For, for children, trust is given first. For adults, once you've been burned, once you've experienced some of the difficulties in life, trust becomes something that is earned first. That is not different with God. God has not got some sort of like little uh, don't have to earn my earn your trust first card that God just plays and hands out to everybody and says, you just got to believe. Like, come on, this is reality. And God's saying, you know, God, God, is, God, is, God is not just someone who claims to care about us, but God is the creator of everything. And if God's created everything, then this place, this is the realm in which we see and test and weigh up everything around us for its truth, for its value, for its um, worth. Is, is, this, is, this is God's realm. You think God wouldn't show up? God doesn't care? God can't be present? God can't make a statement? God can't validate the truth claims with a value that's going to say, you want to see how I love you? This is how in a tangible way for human beings to understand and, and embrace, that's ridiculous. That is God's stock and trade, and this book totally ignores that. It wants you to jump on the bandwagon for some unknown reason. I, I don't know who would read these things and say, oh, gee, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. And if you're a Christian and you're only a quote-unquote fan, maybe you're a fan like you for a good reason because this stuff hasn't worked. And when you see it work, it'll be real. So why on earth are we not concentrating on what it means for it to be real, what the modes are of, of how God does and does not present this in terms of reality, what my experience is as a writer in terms of being loved by God and how this, how this mattered to me changed my life and I, how it can play out in a general way for you. If he was coming down this road, I would be like writing a positive review for this book. I'd be giving him the Amazon five stars. No, you nail, I think you nailed it there for me because, yeah, I read this book as there's no easy acceptance in receiving Jesus as your savior. savior. You've got to do all this stuff, and 
And even when you're doing all this stuff, committing, you've got to make sure you're really committed and not just committed. And yeah, it's it's do, 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 make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure. But yeah, I think that's why it has rung hollow for me, because it's like, well, why? Yeah. And, you know, really, it's, uh, well, I'd want to be a little careful, but a lot of this is, is so, the only way I can say it is self-motivating. You know, God is God's own reward. Being in love is itself a reward. It is, you know, is it, is it, a, is it a really, is it a hardship to, to do good things for your spouse when you love her? for your children when you love them. Well, yeah, it can really frustrate you. But it's not this sort of, uh, it's not the sort of thing where you're selling, it's not like being in a bad job. Where you just say, man, I, I am just doing everything I can to get out of this. I am just like, I am so ready. I am lo- watching the ads. I am submitting apps. I am, I am polishing my resume. I, I am totally oriented to getting myself out of this place. And it's not like that, right? If, if in, a, in a good functional relationship, even when you're giving of yourself in ways that are taxing, this, you're still in a place where you can't imagine and wouldn't want to be any other place. That's exactly what it is. So this idea of self-sacrificing, I mean, it's all within the context of love. When you take it out of that context, yes, you do have to become a slave. You know, as he says about uh, page 151 near the middle, a servant works for someone, a slave is owned by someone. Well, you know, if you want to put the slavery in context, I would say you're a slave to the love you have for God. If I'm owned by something, if I am commanded by something, you see, and this is where it all has to, this is where it all comes together and makes sense. You cannot command love. Love is a gift. It's given freely. The notion of commanding love is, is ridiculous. It's, it's antithetical. And yet, that's what we read, and that's what's happening. And the only way to make sense of it, if, of it is this. The command to love is the command of love to the one who already loves towards that one's beloved. The command of, to love God is a command from or of or that is the outworking of my love for God, because I already love God, and I seek to further that love. In that way, the burden is light, and the yoke is easy. It all starts to make sense. So it's like trying to be in love with something or someone that you're not in love with. Mentally, get yourself in love with someone. <laughs> what do you can? How do you do that? Love's an orientation. You see, this is where Christianity screws up right blatantly. Oh, you'd you love this. So I'm reading this book called The Emotional Brain by Joseph Ledoux. I had no idea, but Joseph Ledoux, apparently this is a seminal work, and Joseph Ledoux is a really big-time neurologist. And he says that on a neurological level, love is not a choice. Love is a response. And this is exactly the problem of the church when you interpret the command to love literally as a command to you, to John, who doesn't happen to love God right now, let's say, to, to kind of pull up your bootstraps or pull yourself up by your bootstraps and love God. 
what you're doing essentially is saying your whole orientation to God is an act of the will. And if you screw it up, it's because you haven't got the strength, the whatever, to do it. That is totally wrong. Your whole orientation to God is an, is an orientation and an act of the heart, which is why in Jeremiah we read that the law is to be written upon the heart. This whole idea that this is just an outflowing of what I most desire. Now, not every day, and no, it's not always easy, and no, I'm not always happy, but that base orientation is what makes Paul, when he writes about, you know, I, we are in chains, we are this, we are that, yet we are, we suffer, but we do not despair, etc., etc. It's what makes him not a fool, or, or worse, a lunatic, but comprehensible and meaningful, because he's saying, I'm in love, and I, my, the work I do, I do gladly. And the suffering I have, I embrace. Because every step I make, I get closer to the one that I love. That's interesting. That's so fascinating. Because, see, I would hear those, those, those verses or... And I would I would say, well, I would, the way I would hear it or the way I think it's been interpreted in my past is we we have that love and this desire to do things for God because of what he did for us. He died on the cross, and so we you know can live in eternity in heaven instead of hell because he died on the cross, and that's why we love him so much. But that's mixing up gratitude oh, it, it's, it's, and indebtedness. Yes, which, which, yeah, which I have in recent years kind of questioned and um yeah in fact in fact i went to a good friday service maybe it was last year it was the first time i've been in a church in a while and i was struck it's it's really interesting i find sometimes the perspective and it's a little easier to be a little more open-minded when i haven't been there in a while to go and, but I was struck, I was struck over and over again at this Good Friday service, the fixation on how much Christ suffered. Like there were pictures and there were songs and there were readings and it was just, it felt like the whole purpose of this Good Friday service was to remind ourselves how much Christ suffered and how just like in every imaginable way that we could remind ourselves how bad it was so that we could appreciate how much he'd done when we came back to church on Easter and celebrated that he had risen from the dead. That this this kind of like but but as we're talking here, I guess what's popping in my head is just this whole notion of just kind of it's like brute forcing gratitude. Like yeah. if, like like let us remind ourselves like how just utterly atrocious the cross was and how bad it was because then we'll be more grateful which and, which just and, seems kind of backwards as we're talking about it and maybe as we're talking too about this idea of you know we love god because what if, because of the sacrifice the more god sacrificed the more and maybe the easier it is to love god somehow yeah and i'm and and i'm so in no way I, and i'm in no way trying to diminish or play down like what Christ did. I'm not trying to make that cheap or, or mm -hmm. any, I would, I wouldn't want anyone to take that away from what I'm saying here. It's just the, yeah, it's the, but it's this notion of, of if we just focus hard enough on, on how bad it was, then we'll be more grateful. 
Uh, and in yeah. fact, I was at a church a couple years before that. In fact, this was kind of pushed me over the edge of leaving that church, where the Good Friday or the the Palm Sunday message was all about spending the next week focusing on how crappy we are, how how just utterly horrible we are as people, so that when we came back on Easter Sunday, we would realize like how amazing God or Christ was for us. And I was just like, something stinks really bad here, but I can't mm-hmm. quite, th- this, this just seems really backwards. This, yes, there's problems with this and yes, we're sinful and all that, but like, like that's really where we're going to, like, that's the best starting point you got. You see, no, <laughs> the best starting totally point off. you got is for me to think about how crappy I am. Like, there's no. got to be a better way. And that's totally off. Because even if you, like, look at all the situations in the New Testament. Look at Paul. Paul, Paul didn't, didn't, didn't orient himself towards God because of what Jesus had done. Paul oriented himself towards God because he's on the road to Damascus. He's out to kill more Christians, and God stops him. Jesus appears. God stops him. He blinds him. And he says, you're going to be doing something different from now on. He took God took one of God's greatest enemies forgave him And said, I want you to do this. How could, how could Paul not love him? How could the response be anything other than that is so interesting. overwhelming love? See, that is so interesting because I've always heard that story is, well, that's what God commanded him to do, so he did it. He got... He got he got a gold star for being obedient and following God. But it's not about that. It's it's a, he, <laughs> that was my that's the whole teaching that I've always that I always took away from that verse was that yeah, he that was an example of obedience. It's an example of being absolutely overwhelmed. It's 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 so many contradictions happening at once. Paul who thought he saw everything, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Jew of the Jews, uh, a keeper of the law, who thought he had everything, was blinded. At the moment of blindness, he sees that the one he has been denying is the one that he claims to love the most, to serve the most. The ones he has been uh, killing are those who have seen things clearly when he himself has seen things wrongly. That he has been forgiven, who of all the Jews should be killed and killed terribly, you know, utterly cast out from his community. He's been embraced, forgiven, and given the ultimate gift. Here, come work with me. Wow, and so that's why he does it. 
course. That's such a different orientation. Changes everything. Who who wouldn't in that situation? You know, who who wouldn't be rejoicing in the the calamities and all the things that are thrown up in front of him? You know, I, I'll take that all because every step I make, I I know now. I was blind. Now I see. I was acting out of hate. Now I love. I was utterly wrong. I have been forgiven. I was walking down a useless path. And I have been given... I have been valued to such an extent that I have been given the most remarkable of tasks. Paul's example is an example of someone who has fallen deeply in love and everything we see, everything he does, everything that relates to suffering, sacrifice and, you know, personal loss is all contextualized by that situation. And that is why it does not work to look back to the historical reality of Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting. It only works to look back to the current reality in one's own life. Not all the time, perhaps, not every month, every year, whatever, but to events or an event like Paul had, clearly not as dramatic. You know, we're not going to have that, each of us. But something, and each person, you see people in the New Testament respond to Jesus, not because of what Jesus, solely because of what Jesus says, but because of what Jesus does and who Jesus is to them in their own lives. He loves every single one of them in one way or another. And he offers that love and says, this is the way it's supposed to be. You know, it's uh, one of the things I was reading. Before you move on real quick, what, what passage of scripture were you reading from or kind of quoting there related to Paul? Because I'd like to go back and read that. Which one? Where you talked about Paul's response and, and why and how he's... Re- Oh, you just even take, uh, oh, I don't like, know. were you reading that or was that more just No, memory? it's a compilation of stuff like, uh, um, okay. Philippians 4, and he's talking about some of the difficulties he's having, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, and he's talking about some of the difficulties there, uh, 3 and 4, and, you know, all through that, you know, um, 2 Corinthians 4. I mean, this is interesting too, um, yeah, like Second Corinthians 4. Therefore, I'm reading from the NRSV. Since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry. Like, get that. God's mercy. You know, essentially he's saying, I, I should be uh, blotted out from Israel. I, I have, I have, I've been the worst. And here I am. called to this remarkably high task. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's words, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus, Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as, get this, your slaves for Jesus' sake. So again, he's, you know, we do not lose heart because it is by God's mercy we've been called. That's exactly what I'm saying. God loved me. God forgave me. God gave me this wonderful opportunity that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a totally new person. My name has changed. I've taken a new name. So significant is this change. And am I going to lose heart because of these, these, these difficulties? Are you kidding? Compared to what this means? I would die for this. Sounds like somebody who's in love. You know, and, and we are your sakes, your slaves for Jesus' sake. So, in other words, we, we, we give up and give to you. So this notion of slavery is really kind of, yeah. you know, in the one hand, Paul's a slave to the Corinthians. You know, on the other hand, um, in, first, in Galatians 4, 7, you are no longer slaves. But, it's, but you're no longer be called a slave, but a child. And, and again, that's, for me, that, that really kind of sets this whole thing of, you know, love and, love and truth, but God is Father, God is King, right? Maybe there is a hierarchy there in some respects. <laughs> in some respects, but I don't claim to understand that. As far as I can see, maybe, maybe what this is, is this is one of those moments when truth sort of stands a bit above love. Or pardon me, the other way around, where love stands above truth, where God is Father, you're no longer to be called uh, a slave, but a child stands above God as king. So, I mean, how all that kind of nitty-gritty works out in terms of how love and truth interrelate to each other, I mean, I think I could make that somewhat clear, but I have to be completely transparent about some things in my life that um, I'm happy to be transparent with you about, but I don't know if I'm going to be that <laughs> transparent on a, on a podcast. Right. Because um, there are a couple of examples where you know, my desires for, for certain things. And, and I think generally they're good things, actually. They're good things. Where they are corrected by the truth of Scripture that, uh, again, I hold to. And again, I guess for me, what I would say is even in this relationship between love and truth, we're still coming back to love God with all your heart because I hold to that. I will allow truth. I personally, Greg, will allow those truths to take precedence over the loves and desires that I have for uh, other people, for other situations, because I love God. And because I believe the truth of the matter is that, that when I make certain choices, God doesn't love me any less, but certain choices bring distance or a barrier between me and God. Not entirely, but I don't want anything. I don't want any barriers there. You know, if you love somebody, it's like, well, you know, I could, I could stay or I could go away for a trip for a couple of months. Well, I don't, well, do you really have to go? No, I mean, I just, whatever. Well, why? why I don't want you to go. Don't, don't, I, I love you. I, I want you to be around. Why, mm -hmm. why would I want you to go? You know, so why would I want that? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I think that's the same thing that Paul's saying when he's saying, I'm not going to let these things inhibit me, right? I'm not going to let them. Um, his words, therefore, since it's by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. I, I am not going to let these things come between me 
and this this calling, which isn't uh, a, a, a a call to my will, it's a call to my heart. It's 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 a call to say, Saul, I love you. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? I love you. I love these people. And all of a sudden, everything's changed. Everything's new. His entire conception is altered. Now, something jumped out at me as you were talking about the command to love God with all your heart. It, how does that square with your earlier assertion, though, that, that love cannot be commanded? Yeah. How do you make sense of that? Well, I would I would say that it's the command is love God with all yourself. You know, it's it's framed as heart and mind and soul and da 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 da. But you got to remember, this comes out of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy six. Really, I was oh, yeah. thinking it was a New Testament thing. No, no, really, no, no. really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, huh. back. See the no, but see, the, and again, this is the. I think I need a. Yeah. <laughs> I need some some spiritual therapy <laughs> to unwind and and discard. Yeah, see I would I would hear that as a command like, you know, I mean, I'm surprised it's not in this book that we're reading. I mean, it, you know, a classic, you know, hit people over the head with, look, it's in the Bible, you need to be doing this. Well, it's it, somehow it is surprising, right? It's this backhanded surprise that Kyle who's so interested in these commands and this this reality of being a slave doesn't put it in there, but I think it's because he can't. He he. No, it, I think it, he would it, say it's part of being a slave. You're a slave. You well, no, he says it that in it, that it's a way of expressing love, sacrifice, and all that is is a way of expressing love. So maybe that's how he would fulfill that. I guess so, but no, this this is from from Deuteronomy six and um, Deuteronomy six. I'll just read it from verse 1 through to verse 5. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and this is the commandment, the statutes and ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you, so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you, and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord your God, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. So this is all, that's verses 1 to 3. That's that's preamble. Well, this, that's what strikes me too is it's contextual. Mm-hmm. I've I been reading uh, oh, Exodus. And uh-huh. and how they how they Moses is up on the mountaintop and Aaron is with the people and and the people you know build this golden calf and and they credit this golden calf with having gotten them out of Egypt. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> like wait a minute, how did you get there? Yeah, I know. So 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 I guess thinking of that command to those people in that time, not to say that it doesn't apply today, and I'm sure it it can in some way, but it's really interesting thinking. It's like, well, <laughs> given the proclivity for creating their own gods like mm-hmm. wow it's makes complete sense to me that god would say look you know fully love me with everything that's every part of you don't go loving some god that you make up or whatever yeah yeah exactly and i mean th- this is the the other part of, of this part in deuteronomy it, it's the same thing as with the calf it's well i'll read the, i'll read the next part and then say what i was going to say uh so 
Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words I am commanding you today in your heart. I mean, that's the kernel of the entire law, right there. Right? And then he goes on, recite them to your children and talk about them at your, in your home, when you're away, you away, when you lie down and when you rise up. Um, fix them as a, find them as a sign in your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. So, I mean, this is the core. That's the core of everything. But he's also talking to these people who have been brought out of Israel, who have wandered the 40 years in the, in the, the wilderness, who have come to the land. These are people who have a very fresh, very daily, very experiential awareness of who God is and what God has done for them. In other words, there is no need to convince anybody that's listening to these words and that's receiving these words that God, <laughs> I get God it. exists. See, God has done good things for you. C, God has kept God's promises. D, God is doing good things for you in the future. Like, hold on, what's your response to this? I mean, you're being told to love God. You're already in a position where everything you've got to be in a love relationship, to be in a relationship of, wow, this being is, is utterly amazing and has given me life, has given me all these things. That's the context. And, of course, Jesus is talking to Jews. When he's talking in the New Testament, he's talking to Jews. He's talking to people who understand this, or who are supposed to understand this. So when we bring this into a, today's context, we've got to see that this is a command of those who already love God to keep on loving God. Of those who have been called to and who have seen that God is God is first, God is primary, to keep on putting God first. Right? Keep on doing the right things that you know you are to do, that you have been given adequate evidence and full experience of their validity. And and then that's the whole context. And then we strip this away. We strip it away from its context, from everything, when we say, you know, just by force of, by dint of effort, by force of will, grit your teeth and make yourself love God. Like, you know, God's not an idiot. (laughs) Come on, who's going to be fooled by that? That's a joke. You know, who would want that? What what type of, what type of God would be, would be desirous of that? I think it would be a God a lot more like Zeus than the God of the, of the New Testament and the Old Testament. You know, that's, that's not, um, that doesn't work. It's, it's, it's kind of making, it's, it's actually idolatrous. You know, when you're, when you, when the type of God you have to conceive of is a God that seems more like Zeus than the God of the Bible, then whatever commandments or orientation you're using is an idolatrous way of picturing this God. Wait, why would you say idolatrous? Because it's creating a God that is, it's that creating something exist? as God that is not God. Yeah. yeah oh, so got, you're creating a false god. Precisely. You're taking something that looks like a Zeus on a on a you know a bad day. Like I would not want to come across Zeus on a good day. <laughs> you know, this, this guy's done horrendous things to. I mean, he's done some good things, but you just say steer steer clear, steer clear of this guy. You you do not want to mess with this guy. And, and, and here I am, <laughs> we're, we're constructing this image of God as, as somebody who will extract from you that one of the few things that, that you know, cannot be extracted from you, 
your your affections. Your affections are your own, and they are not the product of your will. They are the product of your heart. You know, um, they have to be earned. They're like trust, but even more so. And time and time and time again in the New Testament, Jesus earns them. He earns them. And so you would say that that today God God I don't know the right way to say this. God can still earn my trust? Absolutely. And I think at a certain point God has to. You cannot rely on you to be God. You cannot dance for two. Right? You 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 cannot do it. Now how God goes about doing that, what counts? What counts as God doing that? Those are questions. But the fact that God must, and that God wants to, God is willing to. The words of the psalmist have not died in, in the ancient Near East in the Old Testamental time. Taste and see that God is good. That God makes me wa- want to cry. Huh. Why? No, no, the notion that God wants me, that, that God absolutely wants to pursue me. That's it. That's it. And I think, well, I think there's also some sorrow in there, too, because it's like, but I don't feel it. I don't see it. Um, some would say, well, it's all around me. I just don't want to see it or <laughs> my heart is too hard or something. Um, but yeah. I talk to God about that, too. I, I often say, you know, help me out, like help me shed some of this stuff. I And I feel in some ways... Even as I'm just off the top of my head, but I think that maybe even our conversations here are an answer to that prayer because they do they, they do help shed some of this stuff. Oh, that's great. You know, but the part about things are all around you, you just don't want to see it. Like I, I'm not really talking about that. Jesus, Jesus wasn't. I don't see. Maybe you know of, but I don't know of any examples in the New Testament of people coming to Jesus and Jesus saying, "God loves you. Look at the trees." You know. <laughs> There, there are the comments of, you know, even the sparrows, are, God, God, you know, is concerned even when a sparrow falls or, you know, look at the lilies of the field. They are, they are, uh, um, they're beautiful and they're raiment and God will take care of you. God will, but, but, but the, the meetings that God has with people, their needs are getting met. They're, they're getting fed. Even with Nicodemus and the discussions with those religious leaders who are open that discussion constitute has a has a value for his existence, right? It's giving him, it's nourishing him in a way that is essential to his being. But and well, yet, but and yet, though not all those people end up following Jesus. Yeah, true, true. And, and I mean, and, and but but that that a doesn't deny the reality that Jesus is there doing those things, and b that kind of begs the question: What do I have to see? What's my orientation have to be? What's my part in this? God's got a part, and I think this is what this is this is what one of the biggest defeats of evangelical Christianity is. On the one hand, we do not know what to count on God for, and B, on the other hand, we count on on ourselves for stuff that is either wrong, or or is is unhelpful. Wrong in the sense of you know I've got to somehow force myself, muscle myself, will myself to love God. And on the other hand, it's like, no, like, but what are you, what are you not observing? What have you not trained yourself and, and, and helped yourself to be able to see better? 
so that you can pick these things up. You know, we don't, we talked a couple times about the value of testimony. Even Augustine's The Confession is something that I, as a, as a person reading it, have to reckon with. Augustine has this, you know, this is crazy. I read Augustine, and Augustine is re reading Athanasius. Athanasius is a third century Christian, a very prominent individual, who has this encounter with God and writes a story about it. Augustine's own transformation and acceptance of Christianity, of God, comes about at the end of the book in part through his reading Athanasius' tale. So I'm reading Augustine, who's reading Athanasius. You get it? Like, I'm reading yeah, him. Yeah, there's a chain. Yeah, exactly. Now, I don't have any contact with Athanasius. Zero. But I have to... I have to give some credit to that. Maybe not enough to change my mind. Maybe not enough to make me uh, believe in Christianity if I don't believe. But for you, maybe. I've got a tale, and I'm telling you this tale. Is this tale enough? For you, I don't know. Maybe not. But it's something, right? So there's a value to testimony. That's all I'm saying. It's not all about you, but it is also about you, mm -hmm. right? And so it's this idea that Jesus how Jesus healed, you know, the order of the stories in, in the, the Gospels varies from Gospel to Gospel. And, and the manner in which Jesus healed varies slightly. The exact order does not matter, and the exact manner does not matter. What matters is that Jesus healed, and that Jesus heals even you and me. That this is not a historical situation, but is a global reality. And it's not that we focus in on Jesus' death on the cross. Yes, that did something and that changed something, and Jesus' resurrection meant something. But in our own lives, there is healing that needs to take place. God loves us. There is brokenness. Why on earth would God not, not want to heal that brokenness? Of course God would. It, are we likely to, to see that in, in its totality? No, I don't think that's what it is to be human now. I think that's what it is to be human later in the kingdom of God, in the fully realized kingdom of God. That is what it will be to be human. All of that brokenness will be healed hmm. of, of all varieties, right? But now there is the foretaste of that. And that foretaste, you know, God seeks to bring us in as beloved co-workers in the reification, the bringing about of God's kingdom, and part of, part of that happening, and part of God's joy, and part of our joy, is being healed in certain ways, to certain degrees. I think that's what it is. You know, and sometimes that healing may be intellectual. It may be in terms of understanding and knowledge. It may be uh, relational. It may be emotional. It may be familial. Uh, it may be physical maybe sexual. Any and all of these things are possible. Um, but I think where Christianity fails to acknowledge that God is acting and needs to act in the here and now, in people's lives. And it's not sort of a, you know, as my conversation with, with um, Greg Lowry, who's the, he and his wife Lisby direct the Swiss branch of Labrie, uh, one of my conversations with him, it's not an inoculation. It's not a shot in the arm. God does not need to be doing these things time after time. If you look at the Apostle Paul, 
the Apostle Paul did not need another Damascus Road experience. You know, this guy is blown away. He's totally blown away. I mean, you know, and he's got ongoing stuff, right? Ongoing stuff that takes place, that he sees the presence of God, blah, 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 blah. But for him in his life, he would not have needed a single other thing. And it's not about, you know, I need to feel like God loves me today. How do you love me today, God? And the next day, how do you love me today, God? Because once you've had that, you're you're different. You're changed, right? It's for me. My events were, you know, uh, sixteen years ago, um, thirteen years ago. You know, a couple major events. I have like two or three things in my life, one principal thing, and a couple other middling things, and. I'm not looking forward to having any more of them. Like, it would be great, but I don't need more. I'm still, my ears are still ringing, and I'm still humming off of the 16 years ago experience. Hmm. And I I think I just always will. And part of that is my personality and being very intense. But part of it is, yeah, these were powerful experiences. This is not, and this is what, what I needed. And I don't know what you need or somebody else needs, and I don't know what the the content is, but I know that, I think what we need to be doing in our churches is focusing in on this commandment as something that flows out of an existing love and asking ourselves, how is this made possible? How do people understand and how can we as churches help them understand and facilitate the reality of God's love being clear, present, and understandable in people's lives? Well, the spooky music means only one thing. This episode's over, but another one's on the way. Thanks for listening to Untangling Christianity. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment at our website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 23. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. And if you're looking for just one more way to give feedback on the podcast, we're running a survey. Untanglingchristianity.com slash survey. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under Creative Commons License. Thank him for his generosity by supporting him at his website. Tune in next week for a new episode.